The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 13, and it's going to be found on page 806 in the Bible in front of you. We're going to be highlighting a couple of verses today in the genealogy, and I'll guide you along by calling out specific verses for you to follow along with. Would you please stand as I read God's word? Let's begin in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as we supposed, of Joseph. Let's skip down to verse 31 who is the son of Nathan and the son of David. Skip down to verse 34. Who is the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. We're going to skip down to 38 through the end of chapter 4, verse 13. Who is the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we have been identifying our first portion of Luke's gospel as being up to this chapter 4, verse 13, as a pretty unique section of this gospel here, the Savior's resume. What does Luke want us to see by way of credentials, by way of qualifications that prove that Jesus is the Savior uh, that we need? This is the culminating uh, portion of this text, I guess you could say, for these past three and a half chapters. What, Paul, uh, what Luke has been doing is steering us and guiding us to finally come and see what I'm titling the sermon this morning is this, is that Jesus is the qualified Savior. He's been beating the drum, it's been a single note, and he's been unashamed about it. He wants you to see that as we turn the corner and go into Jesus' public ministry starting next week, this isn't just some random man saying random things in a random place. This is the Son of God who is the Son of Adam who has come to save sinners from all peoples, from every nation. If you want to summarize this last credential that I believe Luke wants us to see from these Three seemingly random texts, Jesus' baptism, his genealogy, and his temptation. If you smush them together, you distill it down to a sentence. What is this credential of Jesus that Luke wants us to see? I think it comes down to this. It's just our main idea this morning, that truly Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the Savior. He's uniquely qualified to be the Savior. What kind of Savior? A Savior who not only conquers Satan but the unique, qualified Savior who can truly 
and absolutely save sinners. This is the credential, the qualification that Luke has for us this morning. We're going to do is hit pause. We're going to pray um, before we dive into this text. And as we do so, I want you to just maybe think about this question. It's a question that's been sticking in my mind uh, since this morning. So whether you realize this or not, before we launch um, into a gathering on any given Sunday morning, uh, pastor, myself, what we do is the band comes together and any of the other servants who are just serving this morning, the volunteers that are serving this morning, we get together and we pray. And the gathering pastor this morning, Pastor John Kleinschmidt, asked this question. It's just sort of been rumbling around in my mind. He asked us, what do you hope for this morning? Like, what are you hoping to get out of this morning? What are you hoping to see? What are you hoping to experience? What are you hoping? Is this just another mundane Sunday? Might as well be somewhere. Need to burn two hours somehow on a Sunday morning, so we're just going to show up. Maybe some of you are hoping not to fall asleep during the sermon. That's a good hope. Maybe some of you are hoping that today's the day that Pastor Jonathan figures out how to preach a short sermon. That might be a false hope, all right? Just to preload you on that front end. Maybe you're hoping the uh, pulled pork for lunch today is going to be really good, and I'm thinking that's going to be a good hope because that's what's going to happen. Maybe some of you are hoping to just actually meet Jesus. Like this past week was just a humdinger. Jesus felt far. Jesus felt absent. Jesus felt very apathetic, very passive toward your situation. Maybe you're just hoping to walk away with having heard from God this morning. Maybe you're just hoping for the word of God to just ring true this morning. Maybe you're clinging to your faith by the width of a strand of hair. And you can resonate with the man in Mark's gospel who looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. Like, I'm not at the end of the rope. I, like, the rope has unraveled and it's come down to a tiny string. Like, my fingernails are grasping the very tail end of that last strand, of that last string, of that last rope. Like, that's how big my unbelief is this morning. And you're just hoping that Jesus might have a care for your situation. One of the most unique questions in the scriptures, I think, is right before that man says, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus looks at the crowd in two different times and says, what do you want me to do for you? That question blows my mind king of the universe, the most holy, the holy one of Israel, the high king of heaven, who angels bow down to submit to worship, is asking me, what do you want me to do for you? Have you answered that question right lately? This was an invitation to treat Jesus like a genie in the bottle. Well, you know, I'd like a couple grand in the bank and a brand new card, maybe wipe off the mortgage, Jesus, thank you very much. Jesus is punching into your heart of hearts, and he's saying, listen, if I am who I say I am, as we're going to see this morning, and if it is true that he is the Son of God, who is the Son of Adam, who can conquer Satan and save sinners, for him to ask you that question, what do you want me to do for you, that's not a trick question on Jesus' part. That's Jesus wooing you in, saying, what are you hoping for? And whatever you're hoping for, will you come and cast that at my feet? Now, I say all this by way of an extremely long introduction is because this past week may have just been a week that just completely needs you in the gut. And you began to draw wrong conclusions about who Jesus is. But what we're going to see this morning in this text is a pretty timely word where Luke is going to roll before us the last credential, the last qualification of Jesus, and he is going to show us with crystal clarity who Jesus is, and then as you begin to see clearly who Jesus is, my hope is that you begin to say, my hope is in this kind of Jesus, 
Like, this is the Jesus I come to and who says to me, what do you want me to do for you? And you begin to then just lay your heart not before an impotent Jesus, not before a wannabe Savior Jesus, not before one who says, you know what, I really wish I could conquer Satan, but I just can't really, I really have it in my heart of hearts, the desire to, but I really can't get it done. That's not the Jesus you're going to see this morning. So my question is, as we pray now and go before the Word, and submit ourselves to it. Ask Jesus to help you answer the question, what do I hope to get out of this text this morning? Not because we just need to learn another thing, but because as we get something out of this text this morning, what we're actually asking is, Lord, help me to get more of you this morning. Amen? All right. Well, that was your pastoral care moment for this morning, okay? So here's the invitation. Don't be a spectator right now. Participate in prayer, and then let's dive into the Word, okay? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are a body, a Jesus family, and we come to you, and I, just my answer to what I hope to get is, man, I hope for my heart to be wowed by Jesus. Yes, I'm the pastor, I'm the preacher, and that is the, the skill and the gifting that I'm called to, to use right now, Jesus. I, you, you know this, but Lord, what you also know is like I'm also just a Christian. I'm a man pursuing Jesus. I'm a husband that wants to love Jesus, a daddy that wants to love Jesus and show my children how to love Jesus. My hope this morning is that my heart, which can be prone to wander, I need you, Jesus, to meet me in the hope, the hope to see you supremely this morning. Lord, fight distractions. Satan is an enemy who is employing schemes right now as we speak to do whatever he can to distract us from seeing Jesus this morning. I'm praying in the powerful name of the king who has defeated Satan, sin, and death, that by the power of this king, you, Jesus, the one who has bound the strong man at the cross, that you would right now bind any of those schemes in such a way so that we might see Jesus clearly, strongly, wowingly, glorifyingly, worshipfully, so that this would not just be some other random day, another day of just coming to church and just suffering through a sermon, but this would be a day where the heavens crack open, the Spirit of God moves in the hearts of men and women, and we are changed. And our hopes will have been found to rest on the absolute surest of foundations. He who is the rock of ages, our Lord our Savior, our Christ, Jesus. It's in his powerful name I pray these things. Amen. I'm positive you've heard this old real estate adage. How does it go? Location, 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 right? If you're in the real estate business, it's all about where this piece of property is. And like that old real estate adage of location, 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 what you need to know is that Luke has introduced his book and been leading us along, calling us to see the importance of context, context, context. What you need to know is that the key to the context castle of Luke has been handed to us on a platter in the first four verses way back at the beginning of chapter 1 when Luke told us that he was writing an orderly account so that Theophilus, his original reader, his original audience, and then you and me subsequently reading these things would come to have absolute certainty concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's Luke saying, listen, there might be a big castle in front of you. Here's 24 chapters of content concerning Jesus. Now, what I want you to do is to take this little key, insert it into the lock, turn it, and open up into the door of Luke's gospel and to see that I have written these things in such a way, I've written these things in the order that I did, I put the content in that I wanted to be in concerning the life of Christ because I have a mission. You, to hear about what you know, 
and then walk away saying, I am certain, rock solid certain that the things concerning Jesus that we've heard, learned, studied, been taught, or seeking to learn and ask questions about these sorts of things is absolutely true. So what this means then is that as you work through Luke's gospel, Luke has no wasted space. Luke isn't adding in superfluous stuff to just sort of fatten up his gospel to make it really long, longer than it needs to be. Luke does not have any wasted space. Everything written by him is intentional, and that means even our text this morning. So while we look at these three things before us this morning, all right in a row, all right next to each other, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' genealogy, and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, at first glance, you look at those and go, those seem like three random pieces of information. Luke apparently thinks they're important, maybe didn't quite know where to put them, so he just slapped them into the end of chapter 4, towards the end of chapter 4, and is like, here we go, here's just some superfluous information about Jesus. But what Luke 1 tells us is that is not true. Luke in context, is giving us these things that seem random and unconnected, but, but nothing could be further from the truth. And that's because the tie that binds these passages together is the repeated language of sonship. There's a golden thread that weaves its way through Jesus' baptism, through Jesus' genealogy, and through Jesus' temptation, and it's the golden thread of sonship. In verse 22, you are my beloved son. In verses 23 through 38, the word son appears all over the place because it's a genealogy, but then you get down to the very end of verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. Then you get into the temptation account. What is Satan going to do? He's going to take upon his lips and look to Jesus and say, if you are the son of God. So Luke isn't just giving us random things slapped together. Luke is giving us context in order to understand this credential that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the Savior who can not only conquer Satan, but also save sinners. At his baptism, Jesus is proven to be the Son of God. That means he's going to be proven to be fully God, 100% God. In his genealogy, Jesus is going to be proven to be the Son of Adam. That means he is fully man, 100% man. And then in his temptation. It's this context of Jesus, fully son of God, Jesus, fully a son of Adam that we need to see because you have to approach the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness through that dual sonship lens. And he's saying, if you can grasp the concept that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man, son of God, son of Adam, then it is incredibly good news that Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, is tempted at the end of those 40 days, and walks out succeeding where every other person has failed before him. This is incredibly good news for you. This is incredibly good news for me because it is the proof that Jesus is the uniquely qualified Savior who can conquer Satan, which is what I need, and who can save sinners, which is what I need. Jesus is qualified to be the sinner-saving, Satan-conquering Savior we need, and it's that thread of sonship that ties these three things together. For Luke, this is the last credential in the Savior's resume. It's his culminating answer to the question, is Jesus qualified to get the job of salvation done. Anybody can say anything about anyone, right? We've been talking about this now for multiple weeks. Is Luke just saying random stuff about a guy named Jesus from Nazareth who was a carpenter? Or is he saying true things? And it's almost as if he's saying, don't just merely take my word for it. I've done the eyewitness testimony. I've sought out the stories. I've sought the veracity of these things. I put them before you. But he's saying, look at the credentials of the Savior. And what I think you're going to come away with is a resounding answer as Luke screams, yes, he is. He is qualified to get the job of salvation done. And Luke screams this approval as we roll into our text this morning. He grabs us by the hand, as it were. He leads us back down by the riverside, down to the River Jordan, where we see point number one, that Jesus is the better son. Jesus is the better son. He's the better son of God. That's what you see there in verses 21 and 22. 
So if you open your copy of Scripture, turn on your copy of Scripture, Luke 3, verse 21, notice how Luke writes. He says, when all the people were baptized, so this is carryover from last week. Remember, John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, and all the people, the crowds are coming to him to be baptized. Now he tells us, verse 21, when all those people were baptized, and then when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, notice what happened. The heavens were open. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And this voice comes from heaven saying, you, Jesus, you, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Last week, we learned that John's baptism was just that. It was a baptism, but it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So when Luke tells us that Jesus also had been baptized, my hope is that it's prompting a question in your mind right now. All right, baptism for the repentance of forgiveness of sins. Jesus shows up while this is going on and is baptized by John. My hope is that you are asking yourself, why in the world is Jesus submitting to something that sinners need? John, you keep telling us that he's sinless. It seems like he's showing up and being baptized and saying, well, like, I need to have sins forgiven. That's what John's baptism is about. And so you sort of get this dichotomy that you have to think through here for a little bit. And what we already know, though, from, about Jesus from Luke's gospel is that Jesus is here in this moment being baptized by John, not because Jesus needs forgiveness for his sin. Like, he's a sinner, and he needs also this forgiveness. That's why he's there in that moment. What we know from Luke's gospel so far is that Jesus is the sinless one. He is the holy one. He is sinless, separate. He's fully God. God can have nothing to do with sin. So then what is Jesus doing down at the River Jordan, being baptized in this way? It's this. It's, all, it's because that already, right on the very front end of Jesus' launch, His public launch of His ministry, Jesus is saying that He has come to stand in the place of sinners. Jesus is there identifying Himself so that as people are saying, remember what we said last week, yes, I agree with you, John. I am having this change. My God has changed my mind. That's the thing that we talk about. Repentance is that idea of my mind has been changed. God has shown me and has revealed to me. I must turn from sin. I must turn to God. God alone is the one who can bring the forgiveness of sins that I need. Jesus is showing up in this moment, and Luke is going to explain to us for the rest of his gospel that in that moment, Jesus was identifying himself saying that I am going to be the one who makes your confession come true. You're confessing, I need God to forgive me. I'm going to be the one to make that a possibility, that you will be able to find full, final, forever forgiveness for sins. By being baptized, Jesus is associating with those he came to save. He's committing himself to take their place as the Savior that they need. All this now is God approved. So you might ask, like, well, is Jesus stepping out of bounds right here? Like, when he does this, is he just going rogue? Is this God's redemptive plan? And we can say we know it is God's redemptive plan. This is God approved, and the proof of heaven's confirmation is what Luke says when the heavens crack open, Holy Spirit descends, voice speaks. This is a Trinitarian approval going on. Jesus, the Son, Holy Spirit, God the Father. It is the Trinity saying, stamp of approval, this is the redemptive plan from before the ages, rolling out before you in real time and real place. Right now, Jesus baptized, was praying, heavens open, spirit descends, voice speaks, you are my beloved son. Jesus, with you, I am well pleased. You see, Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's beloved. Jesus is God's deepest delight. And it's this language from the Father that lets us know that in Jesus, we have the better Son that God's people had been waiting for. For all those who heard this heavenly approval, 
Remember, there's a crowd going out in this baptism. They're out here. They would have heard these sorts of things. These would have been Jews who would know their Old Testament. So the question to ask is, where did this phraseology, where did this language of you're my beloved son with you, my will, please, where did that come from? And if you were maybe Joe and Susie out there standing in line waiting to be baptized in the heavens crack, spirit falls God speaks, what you would recognize is that these words on the lips of that voice, God the Father speaking, they would have reverberated with the familiar. They would say, man, that sounds a lot like the scriptures that we know. And it's true because in verse 22, the Father's approval of Jesus wasn't a bag of random words just strung together. Rather, it's a confluence of two of the greatest Old Testament passages, one from Psalm 2, which is a psalm talking about a future coming royal king who's going to rule and reign over all things and is going to submit the enemies below his feet. There's language in there, that's sonship language in Psalm 2, and then Isaiah 42 begins a string of servant songs that the Isaiah is prophesying about this coming servant who's going to suffer and starting in Isaiah 42 all the way through Isaiah 53. It's just this language on the lips of the prophet saying there's coming this one who will not only be a royal king who will be able to rule and reign over all things, but he's also going to be a servant who suffers for sinners. And this stitching together of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 is what you hear on the lips of the Father. In Psalm 2, God announces the enthronement of His royal king, a king who is declared in Psalm 2 to be a son of God. There's that sonship language. Fast forward into Isaiah 42, and the prophet tells us about God's coming servant who will not only suffer, but also save sinners. And in Isaiah 42, God refers to this servant as my chosen in whom my soul delights. So for God the Father to say what he is saying is his unmitigated approval that in Jesus we have both God's anointed king and we have God's long-promised servant. He's right here in front of you, everybody. That is what you need to hear when I look to Jesus and say, you're my beloved son, and I am well pleased in you. You see, in the history of God's people, it might be just something for homework for you this coming week, is to go and see how this language of sonship is used in the scriptures, this language of sons of God or being someone or something being God's son. In the history of God's people, many sons had come and gone. You go back to Exodus 4, the nation of Israel had been called God's son. And in 2 Samuel 7, King David had been uniquely singled out as the son of God. Yet Israel and David both proved to not be the son of God that we need. These sons failed. In various ways they were tempted, in various ways they sinned, in various ways they had failed, but wait no more, says Luke, for the one in his baptism, Jesus, he is being publicly identified as the better son of God who will succeed where all others have failed. He is truly, fully God, 100% God, God's son that we need. All this, says Luke, makes Jesus uniquely qualified to be the savior we need. But he says, don't stop there. Go on. And we go into the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus. And what we notice is that not only is Jesus the better son, but Jesus is the better Adam. He's the better son of Adam. He's fully God, yes, but he's also fully man. Look starting in verse 23. The lineage of Jesus begins to roll out before us. Luke writes, here's what you need to know about Jesus. Jesus, verse 23, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. That little parenthesis there, as was supposed, if you're like, what's that all about? I would encourage you to go back and read Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, and you'll find out why Luke puts this in parenthesis. Now skip down to verse 31. 
Verse 31, it continues that Jesus' lineage flows through the line of a lot of people, but here's two bright spots there. Verse 31, Jesus is also the son of Nathan, who is the son of David. That's royal King David, writer of the Psalms, slayer of Goliath, that David. Roll down to verse 34, the lineage continues, and you see that Jesus' lineage flows in the genealogy of the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Yes, that Abraham, the Genesis 12 Abraham, the promises of God, covenant people, Abraham. Jesus is in that lineage of Abraham. Then you go down to verse 38, and you see that Jesus is also in the lineage of Enos, Seth, and here it is, the son of Adam, the first man who is, notice Luke says, the son of God. Lowercase s, but the son of God. But roll forward from there. Remember, your chapter headings do you a little bit of a disservice because you're not meant, I think, to have a hard break between the end of three and rolling into four. You're supposed to say with your lips, Jesus is the Son of Adam, the Son of God, and right in the same breath, notice, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So in contrast with Matthew's genealogy, remember the other gospel that gives us another genealogy is Matthew's genealogy, but Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and works down to Jesus, but notice that Luke begins with Jesus and he actually works backward to Abraham. But notice that Luke does something that Matthew did not. Luke punches past Abraham and takes Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam. You see, the genealogy of Jesus is just far more than simply a list of names. His lineage is to not only demonstrate Jesus' royal succession from King David, he is in that lineage and he has a rightful claim to the throne in that sense. We're also not only to just see that he is a true descendant of Abraham, he is the one who will be able to fulfill those blessings, those promises of God's covenant people. But the reason why Luke punches past Abraham and goes all the way back to Adam is to demonstrate Jesus' human identity as the son of Adam, as the son of God. He wants you to see that the fountainhead of all humanity, Jesus, is attached to him as well. This means Jesus is not only fully God as the son of God, but he's also simultaneously fully human as the son of Adam. Thus, Jesus is qualified to be everything that Adam and every other human sense has failed to be. He is not only the son of Adam, the son of God, he is also the long-awaited Savior, the capital S, Son of God. Again, the theme of sonship is crucial here. Just think about the sonship things that have been laid out before us right now. As it relates to Israel, as it relates to David, as it relates to Adam... Just think about it. In his kingship, royal King David is a son of Adam. He is a son of God in that sense, but he is a man who failed through temptation and sin. Do you remember the whole Bathsheba incident? Now think about Israel. In their wilderness wanderings, Israel is made up of many sons of Adam also known as God's son, but Israel also failed through temptation and sin. We're not going to be able to highlight it here, but how many years did Israel wander in the wilderness? Forty years. It's no mistake that in chapter 4, Luke records that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. You're seeing a mirror there. You're meant to see that where Israel failed, sons of Adam, son of God, tempted sin, failed, the true son of God, the true son of Adam is going to experience something very similar, but he is going to succeed where others have failed. So with King David now tempted and failed, with Israel, nation of God's people, tempted and failed, notice that it's just no mistake that Luke preloads Jesus' 40-day temptation in the wilderness with the context of Adam. You roll right out of son of Adam. Hey, Jesus is being tempted. Because if you punch back into the garden, who was there in the garden? Adam. Who was tempted in the garden? Adam. Who failed in the garden? Adam. 
It's no mistake that Luke is smushing these things together. This is the context you need to see in order to understand that Adam, who is obviously a son of Adam, who is the son of God, he is also the one who failed spectacularly through temptation and sin. So for Luke to put Jesus' genealogy right next to Jesus' temptation of his way of saying, you need to sit up, you need to pay attention right now, because if you're going to understand Luke 4, you've got to understand Genesis 3. You've got to understand the fall of Adam in Genesis 3 if you're going to understand what's going on right now here in Luke 4. Theophilus, you must see that there is an infinite contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. Adam number one in the garden and the better Adam, Jesus Christ, in the wilderness. Yes, Theophilus, it's true in Genesis 3 that the first Adam was tempted, but here in Luke 4, the second Adam is going to succeed where the first Adam had failed. Yes, Theophilus, Genesis 3 depicts humanity's fall into sin, but notice, dear brother, that in Luke 4, this account of the temptation reports not humanity's fall into sin, but it's reporting humanity's hope as Jesus begins to reverse the ravages of the fall by being tempted, 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 and not failing, 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 but being tempted, 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 succeeding, succeeding, succeeding. This is what we need to see. Jesus is initiating the grand reversal that the gospel brings to us. If you put it all together, what we learn is that truly Jesus is the better Adam, the true and better son who is uniquely qualified to be our savior. Why? Why can I say he is the true and better Adam, the true and better son who is uniquely qualified to be our savior? Why can I say that? It's because as the son of Adam, truly human, Jesus can be tempted in every way that we are tempted. And as the Son of God, He can be tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet without sin. You see, that is the context that makes the temptation account such good news for you and such good news for me. What I need to know is, is there someone better than Adam? Is there someone better than Israel? Is there someone better than King David? The history of humanity has tried to roll out Savior after Savior who has failed after failure. And what I need to know is, can someone be tempted by the devil be tempted to sin and yet not sin because I know me, if I was in that situation, I would fail. David had failed. Israel had failed. Adam had failed. The judges had failed. The prophets had failed. The kings had failed. I need someone who can go through this and walk out saying, I have borne the fullest pressure of temptation through the fullest, strongest extent. And I did not give in in that moment, but as the son of God, I was able to rebuff the temptations of the enemy, but as the son of man, I was able to keenly feel the deepest depths of those temptations and walk out on the backside, not failing, but succeeding. So then that Jesus can look at you and say, when you're being tempted, I get it. I know what you're going through. The temptation is to look in this moment here and to say, well, as the Son of God, could he really experience the temptations that we were going to go through? Like if he's the sinless one, wasn't this just sort of like a grandiose waste of time? If there was no way that Jesus could buy into the temptation, fall, fail, and sin, how does that help me? It helps you like this. How long does it usually take for you to give in and succumb to a temptation when Satan dangles the carrot of temptation and sin in front of you and says, you know what? The price of happiness in your life right now is clicking that link. The price of happiness right now is saying this with your words. The price of happiness right now is watching this thing. The price of happiness right now is crushing that person. The price of happiness right now is your anger. 
The price of happiness right now is division. You want to be happy, don't you, says Satan. Our heart goes, well, yes, I want to be happy. And he says, this is the price of admission. Bite into this hook, line, sinker. Do it. Believe it. This is what will make you happy. How long does it usually take for us to stand up underneath that temptation and the wooing of the devil before we give in? I would dare say 40 seconds. Some of the stronger of us can maybe last about 40 minutes. Jesus went through a consistent, continual barrage for 40 days. Body physically depleting as he is fasting, not eating. Comes out on the backside, and the enemy lays three whopper temptations right in front of him. What I'm telling you is this. The fact that Jesus is the sinless one does not diminish the extremity of the temptation that was laid in front of him. Jesus punched past 40 seconds of continual temptation, punched past 40 minutes, punched past it all. 40 full days of hell's unleashing of temptation to do whatever it could do to get the Son of God, the true Son of Adam, to disprove his claims. And he walks out on the backside defeating them all and what that's meant to do is stiffen your spine and embolden you to courageously walk forward in your christian life because my savior succeeded he did not fail and because he did not fail i have hope in the midst of my temptation to not have to succumb to that same thing i can cast myself on this kind of savior what kind of savior baptism beloved son kind of savior genealogy son of adam kind of savior i can cast myself on that kind of savior who conquered satan in the temptation amen see it is good news then because Jesus is the son of Adam and can truly be tempted in every way that we are tempted and yet as the son of God do so without sin. Therefore, what this means is that Jesus can be the conqueror over Satan that I need. He's the conqueror over Satan that I need. This is the Savior's final credential. This is Luke saying, like, I got nothing else for you. This is the end of the resume. This is the bullet point. See this credential. Jesus can and Jesus will succeed where all others have failed. Full of the Holy Spirit, notice there in chapter 4. Full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is going out into the wilderness, and what's he going to wield? He's going to wield the sword of the Spirit. What's the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. He's going to shut the devil down, and in this we see a bit of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. In action... And the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3, verse 8, that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason, says the Apostle John, the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Notice the theme of sonship continues. But now it's taken upon the lips of the devil who twice questions Jesus. If you are the Son of God... He says to him, but notice that this question is not a suggestion of doubt on the devil's part. I think we read it like that. Like the devil's going like, I don't know. Maybe you don't know either. If you are the son of God, listen, if anyone knows fully and completely who the true, absolute, better son of God is, it is the arch enemy of Jesus who is Satan. G Satan knows full well who the son of God is. So don't read this as the, the devil going like, yeah, I don't know, I'm just not really convinced. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. He's not doing that right now. Satan knows full well that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God, the true and better Adam. Read the question, if you are the Son of God, more as a statement of, listen, I know who you are. I know you are the Son of God. And I know that God has confirmed this publicly to everyone at your baptism. So if you are the son of God, or more so since you are the son of God, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to test you to your limits right now. I'm going to push you to your limits. And I'm going to see if you're going to go all the, the route of all the other sons of God have gone before you. 
Adam failed, Israel failed, David failed, when tempted, I did that, I brought them down. What I'm going to do is I'm going to test you to the limits to see if you will be able to stand the test of temptation and yield to me like all of the rest. That's what Jesus is going on here. And it's not after 40 days of sipping pina coladas on the beachside, and then all of a sudden Satan's like, ah, here's three temptations, we'll decide before him. That's not what's going on. This is 40 full days of temptation, body weak, and Satan comes and he leverages a barrage of hell right on him. Thus the devil lays on Jesus that final barrage of temptations, being tempted for 40 days straight. Here it is, listen. Will Jesus submit to God alone or will he be driven by his own desires? That's temptation number one. Temptation number two, will Jesus worship God alone or will he choose the path of expediency to avoid the cross? Have you ever noticed when he takes him up and says, hey, here's the whole world, I'm going to give it all to you. It's all yours, authority, kingdoms, glory. Notice that those things already belong to Jesus. He's basically saying, I'm going to expedite this for you. You can avoid the cross if you want and get what is yours if you don't go to the cross. Worship me. That's all yours. Is Jesus going to worship God alone? Or is he going to choose the path of expediency to avoid the cross? Temptation number three, will he trust in God alone or will he presume upon God's favor? Satan finally figures it out. Jesus is using scripture to fight him, so Satan begins to use scripture to try to tempt him. Hey, Psalm 91, which is what Satan takes upon his lips, says that if you are the son of God, the royal king, like you know you are and like I know you are, then the promise is that you can throw yourself down and then nothing bad will happen to you. He's going to take care of you, so do it. Just do it. But is Jesus going to trust God alone, put him to the test, or will he... And presume upon God's favor, or will he rest his trust in him alone? You see, with each temptation, Jesus succeeds, succeeds, succeeds. And in the end, what's proven is this. At the end of the resume, what do we see? The credentials of Jesus are flawless. Flawless. Not a speck of error or imperfection in them. Jesus is the true son of God. Jesus is the better son of Adam. Jesus is the qualified savior. Now listen here. What does this mean for you as you go out into the week? It means this. My hope, to answer the question from the beginning of the sermon, is this. My hope is we go out into the week with our eyes able to detect all the pseudo-saviors the world wants you to believe in. If it's true that Jesus alone is the qualified Savior, that means every other Savior that comes your way is a pseudo-Savior. It cannot do. They cannot do. He, she, it cannot do what only Jesus can do. Friends, our world is chock full of pseudo-Saviors. Human solutions for the plight of man are legion. But for every would-be Savior, there is a corresponding disappointment. Listen, politics cannot be your Savior. Presidents, senators congressmen, congresswomen, mayors, city count, none of these things can be your savior. Money cannot be your savior. Friendships cannot be your savior. A marriage cannot be your savior. Children cannot be your savior. Sex, alcohol, career, education, none of these things can be your savior. The world says get more education. That's what will save you. Get into a marriage. That's what will save you. Go get a better degree. That's what will save you. Go and do. Go and see. Go and believe. Here is your savior. Behold, bow down to it. Worship it. Embrace it. Drink it. Eat it. Delight in it. This is what will save you. But if what we we see here in Jesus' baptism, genealogy, and temptation is true. What it means is that all those are pseudo, fake, false, can, not, will, not save. A single Savior stands above the rest where all have fallen and failed in utter and bitter disappointment. I'm telling you, I can turn on this mic and come up here and a lot of our testimonies, if we spoke in this language, would be this. I thought this thing would save me. 
I thought more cash in the bank would save me. I thought sex would save me. I thought marriage would save me. I thought career would save me. I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought. And those things have crumbled into the history pile of fallen pseudo-saviors. But standing on top of that ash and rubble of fallen pseudo-saviors stands the Savior, the only Savior, the royal king, the son of God, the son of Adam, who succeeded where all else have failed. And Luke is saying, here's the invitation. Are you going to trust that Savior? Are you going to trust that Savior? Either he is this qualified Savior or he is not. And he is just like all those other pseudo-saviors, and eventually we're just all waiting for the day for him to like, just crash like the rest. But for 2,000 years, and into all of eternity, what we're going to find true is this, that Savior will never fall. He's never going to crumble. He's never going to crash and burn. And so see the end of the Savior's resume like this. Luke is pointing you in the face and going, come on, come on. Stop with the pseudo-saviors, come on. Come do this. Bend your knee before the Savior. Submit yourself to him. That's where joy is. That's where life is. That's where peace is. That's where hope is. That's where salvation is. In Jesus, the Savior. Amen? Is Jesus your Savior? Is Jesus your Savior? My hope is that you wrestle with that question today and the remainder of this week. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You are the uniquely qualified one. You are uniquely qualified to be the Savior who conquers Satan and saves sinners like me. Like me. Amen. I know the depths of my sin. And they do not outstrip the grace and mercy found in you. Lord Jesus, would you save some this morning? Would you just bring home to someone, open their eyes to see, I need Jesus to save me, and that they would just do that right now. Call out with simple voice, say, Jesus, save me, please. And know that on the back end of a prayer like that, they can find a Savior, not apathetic, not passive, but active, who will save sinners. For those of us who have been saved, Lord Jesus, would you churn our guts for those around us? who don't know this, and would you lead us in love to those around us? That's what we sang this morning. So that we would go with these things on our lips, pointing to Jesus, the qualified Savior. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.